Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine this you're stranded on an island forever. But don't freak out because you get to bring one dish with you your desert island dish. What is it? Every week, your hosts, Paul and Tegan, that's us, hello, hello will ask this question. They'll chat with and torment a literal raft of guests on the island who'll dish up stories, gossip, and culinary secrets. But they all have one big thing in common they bloody love food. Welcome to Dish Island. Welcome back to Dish Island. I'm Paul Verhoeven. And I'm holding a grudge. What do you mean? My name's Tegan. Hello, everybody. Paul and I, we are husband and wife, and on the weekend, we celebrated our third and first wedding anniversary. Are you going to say third and final? <laughs> I was like, wait, this, wait to tell me. <laughs> and Jesus. this is how I announce it. It's a long story. We got married in Paris three years ago, mm-hmm. but we celebrated our third wedding anniversary. So, Paul, you took me out for a lovely fancy pants lunch. Yep. And we are not going to name the restaurant. (gasps) Should I bleep it? (laughs) Yes. Okay. Definitely bleep it because we're not that sort, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to be those sorts of negative Nancys. Suffice to say. Here are several minutes of us being negative Nancys (laughs) about a a redacted restaurant. It was meant, look, it was meant to be a very, very big special day, but Tegan and I, as, I mean, we host a food podcast, so we view food through a certain lens, but I think we went in feeling very generous and optimistic. Oh, look, I, I haven't had a bad restaurant meal in such a long time that I had no reason to fear the food that we were about to be served. I was expecting, I think we went in with... Genuinely reasonable expectations. I mean, this is an expensive restaurant. Yeah. It is fancy. The waiters wear, you know, suit and tie. So it was at the upper end of Melbourne's eating experiences. Yeah. Sometimes in Melbourne, you go to a restaurant and they're not wearing suit and tie, they're wearing sackcloth. And that's when you know you've wandered into a really low end eatery. But these people were wearing not just suit and tie, the kind of slightly oversized, they, they looked a little bit like they're in talking heads. It was a kind of bespoke thing. The, the, the whole place had a really unified aesthetic. I felt like I was surrounded by money, which generally speaking indicates that the meal you're in for is going to be a real treat, right? I mean, I think you all know the direction this is going. We weren't happy. <laughs> Cut to 90 minutes later, Paul and I had left said fancy restaurant, walked down the road to a Bell's Diner where we ordered chicken and chips instead. And I'm going to be quite honest, enjoyed it a lot more. And where'd we eat the chicken and chips, Tegan? In an alleyway. That's right. <laughs> Peak Melbourne, two people dressed to the nines eating bougie chicken in a gutter. And it was great. It was really nice. Yeah. Suddenly I felt, first of all, I was free from the stuffiness of the restaurant mm-hmm. because as you said, yes, it exuded money mm. and not in that way where it was, I don't know, I felt like that place wanted you to know that it exuded money. Whereas yeah. some other Melbourne restaurants that are at that upper end, they're a bit more casual about 
you know, the fact that it costs you $40 for a prawn. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and here's the thing. Certain people will actually probably have a pretty good guess as to where we went, but we're not going to name and shame because that would be criminal. And speaking of criminal, today's guest is a broadcaster, author, and comedian. She's done it all from hosting breakfast radio across multiple networks to hosting the smash hit true crime podcast, Australian True Crime, alongside Emily Webb. And now, Tegan, she's just published her seventh book. Seven books! Bloody show off. It's called CSI Told You Lies, and it's absolutely wonderful, and so is she. Please welcome to Dish Island, Michelle Laurie. Michelle Laurie, thank you so much for joining us on this hellish island. I have to start with the basics. Are you a fan of food? Um, f- less and less so. <gasps> Isn't that sad? Oh. oh, my God, it is. I know, right? It's really tragic. And my mum is a terrible non-fan of food. And I've always, everyone else in our family has always said, God, mum, that's so sad. But I am turning into that, I'm afraid. So What happened? I know, well... I had a sort of a series of like procedures and and um like attempts at losing weight and part of it is that the success of it is that I'm less excited by food and oh, wow. <laughs> your voices are so cute. Oh. <laughs> well, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious. You know when they say that sometimes if you get rid of one of your senses, we yes. watched an episode of MASH about it where Hawkeye Pierce lost his vision and suddenly he could appreciate sound so much more and the oh. crackle of rain on a tin roof and what his friend's voices yeah. sounded like. Now that food is, is not gone but is less important to you, has something else taken its place? Yeah, actually. Um, I mean, because that's a really positive spin you've put on because uh, the negative spin is um, now that you're not addicted to that, have you found another addiction? That's what people normally... Oh. Are you now at the pokies all the time or something like that? No, I'm not at the pokies. But I've, I may have picked up other addictions. I can't think of anything hideous yet. But, I mean, I'm not dead yet either, so who knows? I mean, I, I was genuinely convinced that your move towards, you know, your move away from food was something to do with the fact that your career has pivoted so far towards gore <laughs> and death that it just turned you off the experience. Because I talked to my dad about his time with forensics. I talked to, you know, John about forensics. And yeah. he tells stories about sitting there at crime scenes during the lunch break, eating sandwiches with bodies around them. I mean, has has your immersion in this world with your podcast and your new book <laughs> turned you off food as well? No. God, no. No, oh. not at all. Uh, no, I've had some great meals with, with uh, you know, forensics people, with pathologists. And I've had great m- meals while we're discussing pathology. So, no, sorry. No, and sometimes we'll sort of have a bit of a laugh about, oh, God, look at us eating and talking about that. <laughs> I don't have that iron stomach. Sometimes just hearing John, yeah, talk about some of the things that he experienced from <laughs> his time on the force. Yeah. Um, I get really, I don't know, it seems to take me back to a woman of the 1920s, like I need to grasp at my smelling salts and uh, <laughs> I get all woozy. Mm. But, I mean, one of the last times I saw you, Michelle, we were... I'm trying to picture the exact last time. I can't remember if we were in the back of a horse and carriage and you were interviewing me during comedy festivals. Yes. I but we were we were both in comedy space and that's where we were. I've moved away from that very much now. I don't know if you actually have. I haven't had a chat with you in such a long no, time. I'm in and out, you know, always in and out, around. But now there is this this true crime part of your life, which seems to me from the outside to be the overwhelming part of your life. Mm-hmm. Is this something that you had ever 
pictured like that night in the back of the horse and carriage, <laughs> were you already like, this is what I want to really do? Or, or has this just evolved? Yeah, it's evolved and it's all, to me, it's all, it's all one thing. It's all, uh, yeah, it doesn't seem weird and different to me. And it, it reminds me of many, many, many moons ago when I was first starting out in comedy and I had a conversation with Tim Ferguson from the Doug Anthony All-Stars who was just like my one of my three heroes and the other two were the other two Doug Anthony All-Stars <laughs> and um, and Tim said to me he said look if you stick with comedy you will be amazed at the doors that open up to you at the other things that will you know end up being part of your life and the other opportunities that will come to you and you know so that has just has been so incredibly true to me and um, every time I see him I remind him of that and I and he says okay what else what else what else has happened what else you know we talk about all these other things that happen to both of us and that 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 we end up doing the opportunities that come to us and um, so to me it all it all comes everything comes out of everything else and talking to people and more importantly listening to people when they tell their stories about the crimes that have befallen them, um, to me, comes out of being on stage and doing crowd work and list and having the patience and the um, courage, I guess, which is not, I don't mean to talk myself up, but you know how when you're on stage and you're talking to the audience, you have to have an amount of courage to stand there and really listen to what they're saying and not freak out that, oh God, I'm not going to think of anything. Nothing funny is going to come out of this. You have to be strong enough to Take your time, really listen. And if nothing comes out of that first guy, move to the next lady and really take your time and not panic. And that to me is what sitting with somebody when they're telling you about their child being killed in a violent episode, you know, with a stranger in a park, that's the same kind of skills, really. And I feel like I learnt that skill at the ESPY. <laughs> 20 years ago. I think the word courage is actually a, a perfect word when describing you and describing oh. the different areas of career that you have pushed into. Oh, I geez. mean, I can speak to stand up. Yes, you need courage. <laughs> I didn't have enough of it. Um, even breakfast radio, which is just one of those things. I think you could be a farmer working out in Shepparton who has no idea of the entertainment industry and then if you said, would you like to do breakfast radio, they'd go, oh, shit, no. Like, I think there's just this known this known vibe that breakfast radio is incredibly brutal and difficult. And well, again, you, you just can't be fearful. You just can't ever second-guess yourself or th you just don't have time to think about things too much. You can't be afraid. You just have to keep going forward, 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 forward. Mm. You don't have any time. Yeah. I was uh, lucky or unlucky enough to host Weekend Breakfast on Triple J for like six months. And you hosted, you've hosted Breakfast Radio for, you know, years and years. And it sounds... Because what most people don't realise is that the actual time you wake up and by the time you finish a shift, you've basically just deleted half of your day. And... They say breakfast is the most important meal of the day. It's breakfast radio. You don't get breakfast at breakfast radio. You are burning through that opening tract of the day. What does that do to you psychologically and physically? And what does it do to your enjoyment of just starting your day? It's very different if you have children. Right. <laughs> I will say that. If you don't have children, uh, when I've the first however many, probably 10 years I was doing it, I had no children. I was in my 30s from my early 30s to about to my late 30s, let's say. Mm. Usually pretty enjoyable. Usually I had the energy to to 
I completely invested all of my energy into the job and I enjoyed it very much and yeah, was just completely focused on the job and so and I and on my other jobs, you know, I was just just really focused on work and so I could get through it. And as I say, I don't second guess things. I don't think a lot about things before or after I'm doing them. <laughs> I tend to just be really focused on the moment. And so that helps. Um, I tend not to worry about things after they're done or before I'm doing them. That helps a lot. That conserves a lot of energy. So, yeah, I'm very confident that I can handle the gig when I'm doing it. I don't worry about it before or after. That saves a lot of energy. When you have children, oh, my God, then it just became harder and harder and harder, not easier. And I I speak to the other women, you know, speaking to Fifi Box, how and why she decided to have another child will never, I will never understand because, <laughs> because I was talking to her like I not I don't even know how long before she had that second baby and we were agreed. No more babies, Fifi, because her first baby was getting to that age where she wouldn't let her sleep. And Jackie O's baby is at the same age now. They don't, they just get to an age where they go, no, you're not going to bed at 7.30, mum. No, because I'm not going to bed at 7.30. So it's not happening. And then you're buggered. That's it. Like you'd never sleep again. And that's when I had to say, no, I cannot do breakfast radio anymore because my children will not let me sleep. Uh, Michelle, you and I were at an event for ACAST the other night. They're the lovely people who distribute, you know, our podcasts. And what struck me was you had a light twinkling in your eyes when you were talking about podcasting that comparatively, when you talked about podcasts, it seemed like you were energised talking about this new format. How are you finding the shift and what what, what has it given you that radio didn't? Well, I mean, I'm really lucky because a lot of the reason that I love, a lot of the reasons that I love podcasting come from my early days in radio and I, I just had such a great apprenticeship in radio because I learnt from really great people. I was surrounded by incredible people, had great bosses. They taught me so much and they taught me great discipline and they really taught me great skills. And so when you have that, it's easy to enjoy it, I think. And so, um, you know, we never, we, we were always really successful. All the teams I was in were very successful. So it's easy to love something when you're really successful at it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. we, I was never in a team that was having terrible survey results and they were writing newspaper articles about, you know, are they going to get sacked? I was never in one of those teams. So we, I had a great time in radio. But then, as I say, I, I got to an age where I, I was so tired and suddenly work wasn't my whole life. So I couldn't juggle. I couldn't give it what it demands anymore. And that's the that's when it became not fun anymore. You know, that's when it became a bit miserable. And so now, so I needed to balance my life, but I still really loved broadcasting. I, I still love storytelling and oh, that's such a wank of a thing to say, but I do love audio, you know, storytelling. And I love um, sharing that with people. And um, I love helping other people tell their stories. That was my favourite thing in radio was having callers, was Mm. helping people get on the radio and tell their story because they're so, people are so funny. And, 
you know, now I'm in true crime, so we don't get a lot of laughs, but um, but it's still really rewarding to help a person tell their story if they want to tell it. To me, I love um, the fact that I I love the autonomy of podcasting. Uh, don't get me wrong. I love the fact that I don't have a boss and that I get to craft it myself. I get to edit it myself and choose my own guests and I don't have to compromise and all of those things that you have to do in radio. But I definitely had this passion for radio when it was when it could be the main thing in my life. You, you've moved into a space now where, as you said, the, the stories that you're telling are dark and they're scary mm-hmm. and they're very, very upsetting. And I have a lot of questions. And one of them is about something that you're talking about before, which is fear. You were saying that you don't approach things with fear. But mm. after opening this horrible Pandora's box of true crime. Are you now more fearful about the world that we live in? I've listened to a few episodes of your show. Quite a few, actually. I'm more afraid now. Really? Uh, yeah. I, I don't like knowing what people are capable of. Yeah. No, I'm aware that it's a lot, it, it's a lot less random, I guess, than I thought maybe before. Yeah. Um, in particular, now I'm really passionate about the way that we create, I want to say we, I mean our society and our culture and our uh, politics, our funding models, um, the way we create violent men, um, because it's actually there's actually a number of really clear pathways. And when you look at enough crime, you see them really clearly and you see them over generations. You can see back over the last hundred years and see how how violent men in particular are created. And so it's frustrating to see that, see so little change and see politicians, you know, keep kind of peddling the same rhetoric. We're in an election cycle now and how they lie about funding, about the importance of of different programs. They lie about where money should and shouldn't go when it's so clear uh, what what creates violence in our culture and what ultimately leads to the destruction of lives and you know because it's so easy to sort of win votes by saying I'm gonna build a new prison and I'm gonna take these guys off the streets that's that's really easy what's really hard is to say I'm gonna fund um, programs for young women who are struggling to raise their children and uh, for these neighbourhoods that we know are disadvantaged and don't have enough support for mental illness in young people and I'm going to prevent the need for this many beds in prisons 15 years from now. Um, Nobody wants to think that far ahead. Nobody wants to fund things that are going to work that far ahead. Nobody wants to think that way it seems like creative thinking and and nobody likes you know don't, people don't like creative thinking and certainly when it comes down to budgets and taxes and things you know Australians don't like to pay tax and they they don't like to pay for things like that and those are the things you know that really do lead to violence on our streets and to people getting hurt. When you mean these pathways to violence that I'm that I'm assuming that you have identified, because as you said, you've looked at a lot of crime now, mm. is it just those preventative measures that you think are missing in the direction that our country is going in from up top? You know, you referenced the election. 
Or are there other things, not only are we missing the preventative measures, but are you actually seeing patterns that directly cause these pathways to violence? Yeah, absolutely. And they're not new. I mean, we're not you know, just heading in a direction. This has always been the way. And we can look at violent offenders from the 60s, from, well, all the way back, from the 30s, from the 50s, from the 70s, um, you know, everyone from Chopper Reed to Mr. Rentacule. Just this week, we released a podcast about the um, an offender called Leslie Camilleri, who murdered or was part of the murder of the bigger schoolgirls. I don't know if, if you would remember that, but that's a very sort of famous case in Australia to girls who were abducted from the side of the road as they were, you know, wandering around. They're very close to their own home, camping in a paddock near one of their houses, which they did all the time, and just a hideous, horrible crime. And it came to pass later on that he, police realised that he had actually abducted a number of other young women. Now, on the surface, we can say that men like that are monsters. People love to say that, you know, they're just, he's just bad, he's just evil. Um, but actually, he fits the profile of so many of these other men in that he was born to an inc- in, in an incredibly disadvantaged environment. He was the sixth child of his mother's. She had chronic mental illness issues. He, I think he was, well, he was certainly... 10 years old when he was first diagnosed as being uncontrollable at school. I mean, 10 years old mm. is very young for for adults to decide that you're done, you know, that you're... So, so they kicked him out of primary school at 10 um, and they sent him to the boys' home. Boys' homes we now know, certainly in those days, were just hotbeds of abuse. And in the Royal Commission into, um, you know abuse of children that happened a couple of years ago, they were certainly nominated as some of the worst centres for sexual abuse of children over the decades in Australia. All of those men went through the boys' home system, the Chopper Reeds, the Nettie Smiths, all of those violent offenders. Uh, And then he ran away from there at 12. He was a street kid in King's Cross for a couple of years. So... We now know that the brain development in these men is significantly hampered. I mean, they, they literally cannot develop empathy, for example. Um, they just cannot develop those, those feelings of compassion that we need to be able to, you know, be in society um, in a way that we need to to be, to live together. Chopper Reed spent the first five years of his life in an orphanage because his mother had terrible postnatal depression. Mm. And Chopper, the nickname Chopper, and, and I know this from his wife, Margaret, who's a beautiful woman and still speaks about him in the present tense, calls him Mark, obviously, because um, the name Chopper was a name that was given to him by school bullies in primary school. He was illiterate, as was Leslie Camilleri, as are most of these guys when they get to primary school because of the poor development of their brains. And Chopper was a nickname that came from a cartoon. I don't know if you remember, it was a big dog, Chopper, and the little dog runs around his feet all the time saying, hey, Chop, hey, Chopper, hey, Chopper. And so, yeah, he was being teased and called Chopper by the other kids, and he actually embraced it because he wanted to look like 
he thought it was funny and he just wanted to fit in so badly that he embraced this horrible nickname that they gave him. How much is your, I mean, how much has your faith as a Buddhist helped you? Has it provided a sort of kind of framework to help you, you know, swim out into these waters every week and talk to these people? Has it helped provide a perspective or like a shield as you wade into this stuff? Yeah, definitely. And I think also all of that, like um, just being in the moment, Definitely helps me to sit still when no matter what's happening with them, if they cry or if they get angry or if they just need to sit silently for a minute. I think the worst thing you can do is change the subject mm. if they say something difficult. Mm. So I think the most important thing is always just to sit for as long as I can and let them, you know, uh, tell the story in their own way, in their own time. So... Buddhism helps with that, definitely, just to be able to sit still. I mean, look, it doesn't always work, believe me. Editing this episode about the bigger schoolgirls was, like, incredibly hard. It was a really hard week. My own children were on school holidays, so they were rattling around. And I drank a lot (laughs) during that week. I found myself, it took me so long to do, and I just couldn't get to the end of it. And then I thought, will you keep drinking, mate? That's why you can't get to the end <laughs> of the end. It's like you keep at some point just going, ah, I'll finish it tomorrow. Because and then I realised, oh, yeah, okay, I'm not, I'm, I'm not coping with it. Yeah. I'm, it's really hard. And so I phoned Emily and I said to her, oh, I've just realised something. <laughs> I'm really, I, I'm not coping with this one, you know. I was also curious about how Buddhism has affected your relationship with food because as my understanding Mm. uh, has it it's one of the tenets of buddhism and please correct me because this is based off nothing but you know pop cultural anecdotal evidence and that is that you know you're one of the goals is to try and separate yourself from you know earthly attachments a little bit you know Mm -hmm. um not so get fixated on stuff and on aesthetics and so much so these days food is all about the trappings it's about plating up it's about the presentation (laughs) it's about the heading you know it's it's yeah there's all this stuff around the actual act of eating you know monks only eat once a day and things like that so yes I was very um previously I was very uh attached to food and yeah um put too much importance on it and uh, undisciplined, basically. Buddhism's about trying to be disciplined about life in general, and I know I, I couldn't discipline myself, and um, I, I had I, I couldn't be have any kind of middle way about food. Put it that way. I was either starving myself or eating too much, or I was just thinking about it all the time. I I had no middle way with it. So now, yeah, now I just don't think about it, and. So yeah, I'm so, I'm relieved that I can definitely be a better Buddhist about food, and uh, I'm not a vegetarian, and that's not you don't necessarily have to be a vegetarian if you're Buddhist. That's a sort of a myth that people think. I mean, His Holiness eats meat. Is the Dalai Lama mm. eats meat if it's offered to him, and also his doctors like him to eat a little bit of meat now. Um, so uh, a lot of Tibetans eat meat, you know, oftentimes. Um, so no, I'm just really grateful that I can be a bit of Buddhist about meat. Although, with that said, I recently had to have an iron transfusion because I forget I forget to eat now and I certainly forget to eat meat. And I went and had an, 
my blood started and my iron levels were undetectable. Whoa. <laughs> oh, my God. That and yeah. then you layer in the, the trauma of the, the podcast you're doing, yes. the alcohol. Oh, my God. I know. Oh my I know. God. And this is what I've been mean. turning into my mum. So my mum, my sister got a phone call a couple of months ago from the doctor saying, where is your mother? She needs to get to the emergency ward immediately. Oh and my, my sister was like, what? Jesus. And my mum was just, we all live in the same neighbourhood, so my mum was just rattling around in her, you know, little car. And so my sister found her and said, Mum, you have to go to the hospital. Mum was like, why? What are you talking about? So anyway, they took her to the hospital and her kidneys had stopped working. And so they're trying to figure out why aren't your kidneys working? And they figured out, oh, you don't have enough salt in your body. And then we said, that's crazy. She loves salt, like famously. She puts salt, too much salt and everything. Anyway, what we figured out was um, she hadn't been eating so she hadn't been putting salt on food because she hadn't been eating food. Oh, my God. <laughs> She'd been forgetting to eat food. and But had not been forgetting to drink wine. You see, <laughs> I'm turning it to my mother. Because I always say, oh, mate, she'd live on white wine and fish fingers if you let her. Well, she was forgetting the fish fingers. And, yeah, so, look, it's a thing. And uh, I've just got to remember to eat. And so that's, that's the plan at the moment, yeah. It sounds like it's been such a, um, I don't know, a complicated journey for you and uh, you know I'm happy to hear that you've used the word relief a couple of times and I hope that this is a phase that is easier and it's just it's for me it's a really valuable conversation because you know we're doing this light-hearted show about food where it's all about how much you love food and we're really aware that for a lot of the guests that we invite on, food is, is complicated. Is complicated. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really complicated, complicated. And it represents yeah. a lot of things in our lives. Mm. And there have been a, a few guests who we've spoken with off mic about the complications. Then we only discuss the lighter things on air. And it's, it well, is. particularly it's, 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 over it's COVID, a tricky right? Relationship. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people are saying to me that they've, you know, got their eating disorders, a little bit of food weirdness has come back. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And so, like, for me, I'm morphing from my father into my mother because Mm. my father died of type 2 diabetes. And so people say to me, oh, my God, how did you lose the weight? Like, how did you do that? And I say, well, my father was – they were living with me. So watching someone die of type 2 diabetes – is like really good motivation. (laughs) I can't recommend it highly enough. Watching exactly what doctors said would happen 15 years ago, watching it happen day by day is amazing because he would never, to his, you should have had him on actually, because to his credit, (laughs) to his credit, he was like, I would rather die than not have beer and Chinese. And he meant it. Oh my God. Jesus. Oh, Mish, I'm, oh man. No, no. Look, honestly, there's no, it's not a downer. It's a massive upper. It's like he meant it and he loved his life and he had such a great attitude always. And he was really happy. I'm, I was going to say happy and healthy, but that's crazy. He was happy um, and had a great attitude and like really only had literally a couple of weeks at the end of his life that were a bit shit. Right. But up until then, we were spoiling him. He had everything he wanted. Um, he, he loved it. He actually loved it. And he had Chinese at least once a week, guys, and he loved it. And he had beers every day. And he went to the bowls club and he just loved his life. He loved life so much. Wow. So he said, well, yeah, maybe I could live longer, but why would I want to? It sounds horrible, this diet you want me to live on. He was like, I don't want to live on that. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Right. Are you finding it horrible? No, I love it. I no, I'm loving my life so much. Oh, but, good. <laughs> but but I never liked Chinese that much. Like so, yeah, all beer. So you know, like I I don't. No, we didn't get it. But uh, my brother and I said, listen, if that's he's an he's an adult, he's a grown man. Mm. If that's what he wants to do. But my sister, no, no, she's she still can't bring herself. She still can't handle it. But mm. what do you do? You... I, a little while ago, we um we were lucky enough to have the Bodzilla, and we we got her on the show just before Christmas, and she kind of gave everybody this this PSA about not commenting on other people's weight, whether they've lost yes. weight or not. It's rude. Yeah. It's not their business, and it also it's basically telling people that they have more value with less weight. That's that's yep. what. And so she and I, it was a really great chat, and I took away a lot from that. Are you having to tell a lot of people in your life right now to shut their gobs? No, I I would never do that because I understand the, oh, look, I'm just not that person anyway. And I think probably because of so many years on breakfast radio, I you get so used to people, I guess I got so used to people engaging with me as though we were friends. Yeah. And, and which is lovely, you know, it's a really nice thing. It's people are never nasty to me. People always engage with me as though we're friends and that's nice. And so... Uh, I I engage that way back with them and I answer any question or I go into every conversation that anybody ever wants to have with me. Um, and also I I, rem- I know the the desperation that people can have sometimes if they if they want to lose weight or if they've lived with you know weight or bad self image or whatever their whole lives and um, I really hate it when people lie about how they've lost weight like that upsets me a lot so I would I would never do that I would never do that if anybody wants to ask me any question they want about it I will always answer it honestly um, as in depth as they've I, I, as in depth as they ever want to go I get a lot of uh, messages on social media questions mm-hmm. private you know messages from people from mainly women but not only and and I always I'll tell them anything they want to know. Um, as many messages as they want to have, as in-depth as they want to go. Because, you know, it's very, it can be very painful for people and, you know, and I get that and I'll answer it. I mean, before I had my children through IVF, that was a similar thing for me. That was a similar desperation and sort of anyone who would ever talk to me about that, I was so grateful. Um, So, you know, we've, we've all got things like that in our lives that, you feel so lost with and yeah, so I would never tell anyone to shut up about it. But I do appreciate those people. I remember the first person I saw say that was Jonah Hill. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh yeah, that is such a good point actually. And and for him for a man, a straight man to say it too, I thought, yeah, we forget we forget straight men have feelings, Paul. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, sometimes I 
thought, yeah, no, you're right, babes. You're right. Yeah, he kept getting papped uh, at different stages of his kind of weight yeah. fluctuation and he was just jack of it. And it was really refreshing to have him go, just yeah. like, it makes me feel bad. Stop it. It was very... Of course know. it does. Yeah. And and because my dad was always a big guy and whether or not he really meant it, I don't know. But he was always like, oh, I don't care. Oh, you know, he was, so I sort of internalised that and thought, oh, men mustn't care if they're fat. Yeah, we, we had Osher on a couple of weeks back who was cruelly oh, packed well, I know. as well. Mm. And He and I have spoken about it a lot. I'm curious, Michelle, because, you know, a little while back you mentioned his holiness mm. in a way that seemed a little familiar. Am I misreading <laughs> this? Have you, have you? Were you name-dropping? Have you met the Dalai Lama? Mm, clunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I know his holiness, oh my and God. um, yeah. I mean, it's a thing. And I also know, I also know his baby sister, who is adorbs. Oh my goodness. Yep, Jetson Pema is her name. Wow. And she is also known as Amala, which means mother in Tibetan. And she, this is how great she is. She, when she was very, very young, before she had any children of her own, she started running the Tibetan Children's Village, which is um, in northern India, Dharamsala, and she took on all the um, orphans from Tibet, all the, the refugee kids, and educated them and invented, created this school, which is an excellent school now. And, um, yeah, so she's super cool. And her husband is in the... Um, the Tibetan government in exile, and they're both in their 80s now. And I, we did some talks together, and I used to always introduce them as the um, the Beyonce and Jay Z of the Tibetan government <laughs> in exile. And they were so cute. Oh. oh my god, they'd laugh. Their little faces would just just turn into these beautiful little laughing faces. They're so tiny, and oh, they're gorgeous. And I love them very much. I'm so curious because one of the things that's interesting is doing an episode of Dish Island. And talking yep. with this, talking with a guest about their kind of lives and their adventures and all the different influences, and trying to triangulate, you know, geographically or preference-wise, as they talk, where they're going to land when they pick their desert island dish. Is it going to be from a specific <gasps> place they they stayed, or is it? You know, I, now I've got this kind of what I think. And Tegan, ah. I mean, based on Michelle's chat with us, do you think you have? Any idea what she's going to pick? It's not going to be a Tim Tam, that's a damn sure. Ah, <laughs> uh, no way. Um, no, look, I don't, and I'm, I am very keen to get there. I have just a couple of other little questions course, to pepper before we find out what your desert island dish is. And mm. I think the general big takeaway from this conversation, Mish, is that you don't do anything by halves. And no, I am so intrigued because there are a lot of true crime podcasts out there. Paul, mm-hmm. you you are on one of them. Yeah, Michelle, yours is I think the biggest in the country. It's the biggest, isn't it? Oh, uh, maybe Case File probably is, but we we're, we're up there. There seems to be a big thing bubbling in the background with you with this. I mean, I'm even intrigued about everything you said today. This pathway to violence. What is the future of this this project for you? I feel like there are things that you want to do to really really change things and to get out there and actually make actual change in this space. Am I correct in intuiting that, yeah? Well, definitely we talk a lot about there's a couple of themes that just keep coming back and back and that's one of them. So we definitely try to talk about, you know, in an intelligent way and we we try to get 
great guests on who can talk about them, themes like that about this really, and, and because this continues today. So today the stats about, um, let's say, children who uh, become the subjects of orders through the family court, uh, protective orders, so children who need to be um observed closely by the Department of Human Resources, you know, Mm. Um, children who may need to be removed from their homes. Um, The percentage of those children who then a couple of, within five years, end up in youth detention is huge. It's it's in the region of 50%. So 50% of these children who in one minute are our most vulnerable children who need protection in their own homes, about around half of them within five years are these villains we keep reading about in yeah. the paper who are rioting in the boys' homes because they can't get pizza yeah. and they're villainised in the paper. And then of those children, uh, the rates of those children who end up in adult prison for violent crime, that's astronomical. It's about 80%. So that's, again, this very, very clear pathway from this being born into an environment that is disadvantaged. And that's not their parents' fault. That's like how, who's supporting them? Who's supporting their parents? What's happening there, you know? So that's things like every child should be attending three-year-old kinder. Um, You know, every child should be uh, having access to health checks and all of those things. And every parent should be supported and all of those things. So we try to talk about those issues and about how you vote where that comes in when you're voting and what sort of policies um, and and financial policies, you know, where they meet up with things like that. You know, we just, we try to join the dots between all of those things and and how you vote. And because that's how we all can make a difference in that. And um, yeah, and I'm re- I really want to write a book about that. It's funny because for publishers it's a bit of a snore so I'm trying to make it exciting enough for publishers mm. I mean I mean I'm close I'm close they're like is this your is this your book again about how all you know poor kids should go to kinder I'm like Duh! yes <laughs> <Damn> it. <laughs> yes it is damn you but you know we're getting there we're getting there because there's some pretty notorious criminals who you know that uh, the more I the more stories I tell, the more I realise, oh, this is another one. Yeah. He fits the profile again. Yeah, so it's a long, amazing list of men. Yeah, so that's all. In- that's yeah, that's all amazing. One of my goals. I, mm. I think. I think the other thing I was probably dancing around and not wanting to directly ask you, what but Helen, are you going to go into politics? That's because what I was going to. I want to know if you're oh, going to no, do it. No, 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 God, no. Because, Come on. Um, because you know who will raise my children. I mean, my daughter even asked me that about six months ago. She's like, Mum, you should go into politics. I go, mate, who's going to raise you? That's why there are no women in politics because I'm a single mother. Um, you know, I can't go to Canberra from Monday to Friday. Uh, and, and even in state politics, like, it's just so incredibly... Having met those women and really, really learnt about their lives... Like I, you can't. I can't. You know, until my children are at least grown, and then, gosh, who knows I, what could happen? No, I just don't think. <laughs> I don't think it's. I don't think it's my go. But I do like supporting those women, and I do like working around the edges. And I just, I, I like what I'm doing. I like helping people tell their stories, and and I think that's where it's at for me. You know, because I don't think there's enough of that anyway. 
Mm. And yeah, I, I enjoy doing that. And also, I want to retire one day and go and sweep floors for some monks and spend more time with His Holiness and his little baby sister, Jetson Pema. That That's sounds lovely. Aw- you're awesome. This is awesome. I'm so, ah. it's so nice having a chat with somebody you already know and finding out 10 times more than you thought you would, you know? Yeah. Oh, and- thanks. I love chatting with you guys too. It's nice to just chat with you guys. We don't get to see each other enough. No, we don't. But look, I do, I, I love hearing about all this because. Paul, John and I, um, we regularly chat about the morality of what a true crime podcast is or Mm. when you're basically profiting from telling stories about horrible things that happen to other people who often Mm. haven't, I mean, certainly in the case of the podcast that we produce, haven't given us consent to share that story. And Mm. there's a lot of stuff where we go, does this help the world by publishing this? Maybe not. I know exactly what you mean yet. But you know what? I think it does in your case as well. I think, yeah, but you do have to check in with yourself all the time. I think a check in. But, you know, it's, yeah, hearing about all the work that's that's happening with yours and it's it's exceptional. Yeah, it's exceptional. I just honestly think, look, if you if you don't know what to do with your kids when you're running for office, just you need you'll need a campaign manager and a speechwriter. Just in, <laughs> enlist them off the bat, get them on the get them on the government payroll. My daughter will be would be great. She might she might do it. Ooh, she might do exciting. it. She's already told me she's not having kids, and I think, oh, what does that say about <laughs> what what we're doing here? You know, but well, she's probably right though. But yeah, she might. Well, all right, I mm. think it's time. Paul, I know you've been absolutely champing at the bit to ask Michelle what her desert island dish is, so go on. Okay. Go on. Well, you pretty much did it. But listen, uh, you are stuck <laughs> on our island now. And uh, by the way, we will need some sort of uh, governor here, some sort of political figure. So if you want to run for office here, that's, you know, it's a good place to start your career. Yeah. You know, you start with mayor and you work your way up to prime minister. It's that, <laughs> That's how it goes. Uh, but you are trapped here and you can only bring one dish with you. So Michelle Laurie, what is your desert island dish? Well, you did... Preempt it. You did preempt it beautifully. It is the momo. Have you heard of momos? M O M O. It is like maybe the sort of traditional national dish of Tibet. <laughs> ah, you did get it, Paul. Yeah, you did. And I ate the best momos in my life in India in 2017 when I went to see this thing called the Kala Chakra, which is uh, it was a two week teaching given by His Holiness. And um, it was in the place where Buddha reached enlightenment in Bodhgaya, and there were 300,000 people there. Oh. Uh, it was amazing. It was so wonderful for so many reasons. And, uh, and, and, you know, I don't know about you, I'd never been to India before, and I think there's this thing in Australia where a lot of people will say, oh, you'll get sick, you'll get sick, you'll, you'll eat something, you'll get sick. I did not get sick. The food was wonderful, and I even ate street food, which, again, people in Australia, because we're oftentimes racist, will say, don't you eat anything, don't eat the street food from the street vendors, but the momos from the street vendors were so amazing. They are like dumplings. They're their version of dumplings, and, uh, you know, they're just beautiful, um, like hot dumplings with minced meat or vegetables in them, and, you know, you can have, like, soy sauce or something like that, cheap. Very healthy. Uh, you can have them in a little bag and walk around with them. Ooh. Or you sit down. We would sit outside and you'll just sit with anybody, strangers, chatting away. 
If you don't speak the language, you can just look at each other and smile and enjoy your momos. Have you ever taken a crack at making your own? I have. I made them for, uh, I can't remember what it was. It was, a, it was a festival, some kind of Buddhist thing, and I made them for the monks. I made momos and they laughed. So, um. <laughs> is, that, is that good? Is that a good thing? Well, I mean, it's always good to make someone laugh, right? Indeed. We all know that. The three of us know that. So I don't know if they were good or bad or whatever, but I know there was lots of laughter. I, th- I So I don't know. I think they just laughed that I tried because I think I was surrounded by experts and I think the fact that I tried to make them, they just thought was funny and great. Amazing. Oh, that's a really good desert island dish, and it's another one that I've never had. Do you know of anywhere? I mean, we're based in Melbourne. Do yeah. You have, where could we go to get our Momo one? There's heaps. Any In Melbourne, in Australia, they usually will call themselves like a Himalayan restaurant mm. or something. I can't remember where. Is it Gurkhas you're thinking of? Potentially, there was yeah, there, yeah. There was a chain of Nepalese restaurants, and they were really, really good. And I don't recall ever having had a momo, but now I want. Uh... No, they would. They definitely would have it. Yep, Nepalese people eat momos. I remember I took my dad, of course, um, somewhere here in Melbourne, and I, it might have been Gurkhas, and we ate momos until the cows came home one day. Well, now you're yeah. stuck here with your momos, and oh. Happy days. You are very, very welcome. We'll make sure you get a fresh batch every morning, okay? Just oh. on your doorstep instead of milk. It'll be um, very confusing for you. But Michelle Laurie, thank you so much for joining us oh. on Dish Island. Oh, namaste. Oh, God, Paul, I could talk to Michelle Laurie, honestly, for hours and hours and hours. However, we have had to bring her incredible interview to an end because you and I have got to focus on the job ahead of us this weekend. Over the past few weeks, folks, we've been chatting about this dinner party that Paul and I have got to host. That's right. This weekend, we are hosting some of Australia's most prominent foodies and restaurateurs in our house. By the way, listeners, you know what happens when you invite a lot of people to your house and you didn't have the appropriate furniture? You have to buy furniture. It's been a really weird week. We went out to Bunnings and bought a trestle table because we realised that we've got nowhere for anybody to sit. Take an ixnay on the essel tray, okay? Okay. I don't want people to know that we go straight to Bunnings when we're having trouble. Paul, we're Australian. Of course we go straight to Bunnings when we're having trouble. Where else do you go? If there's a zombie apocalypse, I'm going straight to Bunnings. Ah, see, I'm going to Officeworks because Officeworks also has food. Anyway, that's a whole other point. You know, let's not get into that one. Let's not get into that one. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to tell you what we've kind of settled on for a menu at this early stage, and then we're going to report back next week, okay? We can't do that because all of the people coming to the party listen to this podcast. No, no, they won't listen to this one. I'll make sure they don't. I'll be like, we slander you. Don't listen. (laughs) (laughs) We say some really libelous shit. Please don't listen. Okay, okay. Paul, you do a really lovely uh, Israeli hummus. Yep. We're going to serve that with some baguettes that a friend of mine makes. Mm-hmm. Uh, start off, what else? Oh, we're going to just do some freshly shucked oysters to start off with. Yep. Then uh, we're going to make Ottolinghi's incredible bean salad, which is uh, from uh, one of his more recent books. It's really, really interesting. It's nice. I still don't think the bean salad fits anywhere. But anyway, we're moving towards a main, which is going to be a Sichuan leg of lamb served with homemade flatbreads. Um, a kind of deconstructed tzatziki that I've been working on, mm-hmm. and lots of booze. Yeah, that's right. What and do you think? Does that sound good? I think there's no way a Bunnings trestle table can carry that much food. That's my genuine concern, but I guess we'll find out. You know, it'll be something to talk about. Anyway, yeah, I'm really, I've completely overthought it. Oh, and then there's the dessert, which I still haven't even decided on. <sighs> I, I'm literally staying awake at night thinking about this fucking dinner. Please bleep that ball. <laughs> 
hey, here's one thing, Tegan. There's no way our dinner is going to be as bad as the dinner that we had at <laughs> Maybe I can try and say, hey, maybe I can try and slip one past the, past the bleep. Don't just bleep them. Bleep them. Stop it. God damn it. Stop it. Wrap it up for this week. I'll get one through. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to this chaotic and wonderful episode of Dish Island. Don't forget to head across and subscribe. If you haven't already, leave us a rating and a review on Spotify or Apple Podcast. It's the best way to show your love. And we will see you next week for another episode of Dish Island. In the meantime, eat, eat your, your veggies. veggies. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Dish Island. Dish Island is a proud member of the ACAST Creator Network. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.